This morning we began a new series in the Bible uh, out of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's not uh, maybe too familiar if you're going to use a Bible to follow along that's in the pew rack in front of you. It's on page 703, or you can follow along on the screen, or it's about in the middle of the Old Testament uh, section. I entitled the, the series, It's a Wonderful Brief Life, because I probably wanted to, for us to feel the tension about living in uh, this world, what our uh, writer of Ecclesiastes calls living under the sun, that any gift of life, no matter how that life is, is wonderful because it's a good gift from God. But no matter how good and wonderful that life is, it's brief. And so with that in mind, hear the word of the Lord as I read out of the the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, just the first 11 verses as our introduction. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new, it has been already in the ages before us? There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. May God help us to understand this, his word. A couple of housekeeping before we get into the introduction here is that um, uh, weekly I write a brief summary of the message that is to be delivered that Sunday. If you would like to be on that distribution list, you can do it one or two ways if you're not already on it. One is you can use that text number to the upper right-hand corner and just let me know what your email address is and we will uh, put it on the distribution list. The other thing is there's a contact card in the pew in front of you. It's kind of bluish. You could write your email as legible as possible uh, on that card, and we will add you to the distribution list. It typically comes uh, Thursday night or uh, Friday uh, morning. Also, in that upper right-hand corner, uh, it's a, a opportunity if you have a question, something that the text raises or I raise, uh, you can give me that feedback by just uh, texting using that number and then I'll get back to you uh, during the week with an answer. It may not be 
uh, satisfying or complete, but it might be all I can offer as well. And so with those two pieces of uh, housekeeping, there is no other book in the Bible like Ecclesiastes. There just isn't. One writer said it this way. He said, it's a book that asks the questions the other 65 books of the Bible set out to answer. One writer uh, went on to say that Ecclesiastes shows us the inexhaustible and unfathomable reality of life. And that makes us incredibly uncomfortable. The theme for Ecclesiastes is given to us here in the second verse when he says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The author is uh, saying to us this because he's looked at life and sought out its meaning. And Ecclesiastes is what he has learned. Because of this, Herman Melville, who wrote Moby Dick, said this about Ecclesiastes. He called it the truest of all books. He doesn't mean the truest of the 66 books of the Bible. He means if you take Ecclesiastes and you compare it to all of human literature, it is the truest of all books. In fact, he says the author of Ecclesiastes is like the last guest at your party that will not leave. The poet John Donne says that the author pours out his soul and hides nothing from us. And yet Ecclesiastes is one of the least read and least preached books in the Bible. And so I want to give us an introduction as a foundation as we move forward by asking a series of questions and providing the answers in these 11 verses. And the first one is, who's Ecclesiastes written for? That is, who benefits from reading Ecclesiastes and receiving that kind of wisdom? Well, first of all, Ecclesiastes is for doubters and skeptics. It's for the thoughtful and the bored. It's for those who want to ask the hard and difficult and tough questions. It's for those who are suffering or watching someone they love suffer. It's for those who are tired of sentimentality and pat answers and cliches. It's for the pessimist who thinks life is hard and unfair. It's for cynics who think that the bad guys are winning It's for busy people who are running and working and striving and chasing, but are tired. It's for those who are ready to stop and ask, why am I working so hard? Ecclesiastes, one writer calls an ancient book for modern times. When you look at what is going on in our cities and in our suburbs and in our small towns, It's all right here in the book of Ecclesiastes. Many think, most of scholars think, that the author of Ecclesiastes is a pessimist. I don't think he's a pessimist. I think he's a realist. But my goal is to show you that in reality he's the teacher of joy. It's hard to get that sometimes. And that's why we have to look closely. And remember that he's always pointing us to the gospel. Here's someone who understands life 
and pulls back the varnish so that we could see that all that is underlying in the world and having a real perspective. I recommend this book to anyone who is skeptical about Christianity. It's a great a compliment to sit down with someone who doesn't know much about Jesus or much about the Bible because it is so real. It is where our culture's questions arise. It's nice to hear it mirrored in the scriptures. Rankin, Rankin Wilburn, who's a pastor on the uh, uh, West Coast, he says, you ought to read Ecclesiastes and read the book of Mark second. And we're going to do that. We're going to study Ecclesiastes and Lord willing, beginning in January, we'll study uh, Mark because Ecclesiastes asks the questions that Mark answers. It's ironic that Rankin uh, did not preach Mark after he preached Ecclesiastes, but we, we hope to. But if you want to sit down and you want to read them, both of them are quite short. Uh, Ecclesiastes is uh, 12 chapters long and Mark is 16. You can do it in one sitting. But who's the author? Sometimes knowing who the author is helps us understand. Some uh, have said that he is Solomon because Ecclesiastes is part of the wisdom literature of the Bible. It's a kind of genre of writing style. And so like Proverbs, that also was written by Solomon, that possibly Ecclesiastes, another reason people that think Solomon is the writer is because of verse one, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, and Solomon meets all of that criteria. We don't know because he doesn't identify himself as Solomon. He's at least Solomonic, someone like Solomon, who's wealthy, powerful, can do these kinds of quests. He could do these kinds of searches because he has the resources. He's definitely someone who has had it all, who has had seen it all, and has done it all. But the only way he refers to himself throughout the, the, the book of Ecclesiastes is to call himself the Colette. That's a Hebrew word that simply means the teacher or the preacher. And we'll use those interchangeably through our series. Sometimes we'll call him the teacher and sometimes we'll call him the preacher. The reason it's that diverse is because the word in Greek is Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is from the same word as ecclesia, which means assembly. And so a Colette or an Ecclesiastes is one who gathers the people of God in order to speak to them. So in one sense, every preacher is a Colette. Every Sunday school teacher is a Colette. But in this case, this is how he identifies himself. And so we will often refer to him as the teacher or the preacher. He writes an incredibly personal and philosophical memoir. You know what a memoir is. Someone who looks back at their life and gives you the lessons that they have learned. He's the type person that Dosekis had in mind in those commercials when they said he's the most interesting man in the world. And at his time, whoever this Colette is, he's the most interesting man. And he goes on a great quest and wrote down his lessons for us to learn. So what is the quest for? 
The key question is in verse 3 that he's going to repeat throughout the letter, but he gives it to us right up front. It's ironic that he gives us the answer before he gives us a question. Verse 2 was the answer. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now he gives you the question. What does man gain by all the toil? That word toil means to strive. At which he strives under the sun. Why do we strive? What do we get from it? What's the purpose of it all? What's the meaning to our striving? And then he says a phrase that he repeats over 30 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Under the sun. My quest is to look under the sun. Under the sun is where we live. You and I live under the sun. It's everything that's on earth. It's where nothing is new, according to verse 9. Where what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. That's the Colette, the teacher's way of saying this. Whatever mountain you're out there climbing on, pleasure and power and wealth and success, philosophy, even religion, if that's the mountain you're climbing on, the Colette, the teacher is saying, I've been there already. I've already climbed that mountain. And there is nothing there. Just vanity. Just vanity. He's even climbed bigger mountains than you and I can climb because he has all the resources at his disposal. You and I can think of pursuing pleasure and success and wealth and position and and religion. We can do it to the degree that we've got resources. His were fairly unlimited, he says. Now he's coming down off his mountain and he has written down what he has learned Why? So we don't have to climb that mountain to see that nothing is there. So what did he learn? Again, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The word vanity that is written over 38 times in Ecclesiastes. The most repeated word in all of Ecclesiastes. Vanity. So therefore, it's, it's important to know what it is. In Hebrew, it's hevel. H-E-V-E-L. And it simply means futility, frustration, and emptiness. That's why it's often translated as a vapor, or a mist, or the wind. It's temporary, it's brief. Everything under the sun is hevel. Everything under the sun is frustrating, Everything under the sun is like grabbing on to smoke that eventually escapes through our fingers. If you try to hold on to anything, any person, any place, anything, any idea, including theology, it will slip through your hands. The teacher is resetting our expectations about life. He's trying to help us live under the sun. Under the sun, life is not always going to make sense to you. Under the sun, life is not fair. Under the sun, good people don't always win. 
In fact, under the sun, often bad people get away with doing bad things. He's not just trying to get us to stop having expectations. That would be impossible. He's just trying to, for us to recalibrate them, to, to rethink about our expectations. The teacher's point is that we need to say what is true and what is real and what is good and what is beautiful. He wants us to find contentment under the sun. He wants us to be happy here and now. But the lasting contentment and joy are found not under the sun, but above the sun. Joy and contentment is found in God alone. He's the only thing that lasts. He's the only thing that we can hold on to and what we are being held by that will never let go, that will never be the smoke that disappears as we hold. And so why are we so frustrated in this life? If that's true, why are we struggling? Why are we striving? That's why the teacher looks at all of our striving. He calls it toil. He tells us that our striving won't produce what we had hoped it would. And if we live long enough, we'll figure that out. He's just trying to save us some time so that we can enjoy more of this wonderful, brief life God has given us. You see, as long as we think that our striving is going to give us the ultimate contentment, the ultimate joy, the ultimate meaning, the ultimate purpose, whatever that might be, pleasure and power and prestige and money and, and, and philosophy and religion, as long as we're thinking those things are going to give it to us, then we're never going to be content. It will only be when we enjoy those things but not have them as our ultimate things. And in order to show us that, he's going to use three illustrations in the middle of our text. Verse 5, 6, and 7. He calls one the sun. Let's learn from the sun. Let's learn from wind and let's learn, learn from the rivers. He says the sun rises in verse 5 and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The word hasten there means vigorous activity resulting in chronic weariness. Hebrews it, when you go to learn Hebrew, one of the things that you would learn is that they have to import a lot of stuff into a single word because there's not a, a, a significant vocabulary. And so packed into this one word that's being translated hasten to us in English means to strive. But in the end, it just creates weariness rather than contentment. And then he says, look at the wind. In verse 6, it blows to the south and then goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. Does it not sound like what Bob Dylan sang in the 60s? Turn, turn, turn. The answer, my friend, is what? Blowing in the wind. Well, what's the answer blowing in the wind? Nothing changes under the sun. You can be in America, you can be in China, you can be in Scotland, nothing changes. Everything that has been is. Everything that will be has already been. Then he says one more, can, can you learn from the streams? Where do they run? 
Verse 7, they run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All the rivers run where? They run to the ocean, but the ocean never fills. They keep toiling, they keep striving, but nothing is ever satisfied. Can we learn anything from the rivers? It's that they, they flow, but where they flow to never fills up. Here's the punchline, verse 8. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. All of our striving just wears us out. It never truly, fully, and permanently satisfies. It doesn't matter whether you're the preacher up on the platform or you're the congregant in the pew or the person who is unchurched out in the community. This speaks to us in all of our striving. It's just wearing us out. We're not finding contentment. We're not satisfied. And so what do we do? We redouble our efforts or we just give up. Not give up on striving to get our goal. Just give up. It's never truly, fully, permanently satisfying. Therefore, joy cannot come from striving. Not real joy. Yes, you can have momentary lapses of happiness on your way to sorrow. But that is not joy. The teacher tells us not to be anxious because... It has always been like this. That's what verse 10 tells us. Is there a thing at which is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. Please take the word of the teacher. That's what he's saying. He says, I've, I've written this down at the inspiration of the spirit. So you don't have to learn the lessons I've learned. You don't even have the resources that I have. Learn from me. Take my word for it. And therefore, if we study Ecclesiastes together, it will wound us. Because we have been striving after the wind. And maybe sometimes that's in the area of your career. Or maybe that's in the area of your finances. Maybe that's in the area of your relationships. Maybe that's in the area of success and pleasure. Lots of things. Maybe even in religion. But it's not satisfying. If it wounds us. I promise you it will also heal us. If we allow Ecclesiastes to wound us, to expose our striving, it will also point us to what truly satisfies, what truly is the source of permanent joy. That's why he spreads throughout this letter eight poems. All the subject of each poem is the same, joy. Because he wants us to understand where joy comes from. It comes from God alone. One writer says that happiness equals reality minus expectations. Another way to think of it is this. The way things are minus how you expect them to be. Can we find joy? Ecclesiastes says, of course. But it is not beneath the sun. It's above the sun. That's why the teacher began the quest in the first place. 
He says, I've tried everything and everything to its limit. My conclusion is this. There is no lasting joy looking under the sun. The closer he looked, the more life seemed absurd. The only certain thing under the sun he's going to show us in chapter 9 is death. And there's lessons to learn there too. In fact, he says, once you die, no one is even going to remember your name or that you were here. Verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. I know that sounds incredibly pessimistic, but it is so true about how little we remember about our grandparents and great-grandparents that have come before us. If left here, it would be hopeless and depressing. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. We need to go to the end of the book. So I'll give you that little nugget because that's where the hope is. It's like somebody has written you a long letter that is a Dear John letter. And the only good hope is at the end. The only piece of good news they're going to give you is at the end. And that's what the writer of Ecclesiastes does for us. Almost at the very end. It's chapter 12, verse 13. He says, the end of the matter. I love when somebody tells you that. Otherwise, we would wonder if it's the end of the matter. All has been heard. That is, I've written everything that I've learned, except this. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. We're going to unpack this idea as we go, because it's the key to understanding where joy comes from. It's the fear of God. But the fear of God in the Bible is different than being afraid. The fear of God is knowing your place by living in the awareness of God's presence and living in awe of God's transcendent holiness. And that's going to take some explanation and we don't have time this morning, but just hear the good news. If everything under the sun is hovel, if everything under the sun is meaningless, we need to begin looking above the sun. God has given each of us a single life to live. And it is a gift, no matter how hard it is, no matter how much suffering comes into your life, how much difficulty, how much frustration, it is a gift from God. No matter how long it is or how short it is, all of our days are numbered. For many, it is a long life, but it is still in comparison to eternity, a brief life. Delight and joy comes from God. He's given us lots of gifts along the way that we are to enjoy, but never are they to be our ultimate meaning and purpose or the source thereof. Don't let them be ultimate things. You will enjoy them if you don't require of them joy. You can enjoy them if you don't require of them joy. Ecclesiastes asked the question that Jesus is the answer to. Jesus has already climbed the mountain. It's called the cross. He gave up 
all of these things to come here. All the power and prestige and position and wealth and success. King, after all, of not just some little crown, but of everything. And he considered all of those things in comparison to winning you. And so he climbed that mountain for us. Even though Ecclesiastes never mentions Jesus' name, not even the Messiah, every verse compels us to place our faith in a Savior who makes all things new. He alone can make this wonderful and brief life meaningful and even joyful if our faith is in him. In faith in what he has done for us. By climbing the mountain we should have climbed. And what is on that mountain? Death. Our death. His death for our death. So that we do not have to climb any mountains. That's the good news of Ecclesiastes. And I pray as we work our way through it, you can see how much God wants us to put our trust in Him. Because He has already done the heavy lifting. He's done all the climbing. And He wants to satisfy. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this great good news of the Gospel to us from Ecclesiastes. I pray that as we study, You open our hearts. And if it's necessary to wound us, in order to heal us, to make us conform to the image of Christ and truly that those parts that are disintegrating inside of us and outside of us have shalom, come back together, wholeness and flourish. And I pray that for all of us in here and all of those out there. May this be true about our nation, that it might taste the sweet food of shalom that you offer in the bread of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.